Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made four low-budget feature films of varying success, and I've been to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length films on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School, the 50th episode of Discount Film School. It's kind of funny. I remember, uh, obviously, the, this whole podcasting fun started off with how, uh, how are we were. Aaron and I just kind of joked around a bunch. And then after like 25 episodes, we were like, we should do other shows, like a video game show or a filmmaking show. And I figured that the filmmaking show would maybe be 10 episodes, you know, just interview like 10 of my closest filmmaking friends or or most influential filmmaking guests or something like that. And uh, uh, very quickly, this Discount Film School became my favorite show. Um, 50 strong and there, I, I, I've got a, a pretty long list of people that I still haven't talked to that I'd love to talk to. And of course, uh, the, the more film experiences I have, the more podcast guests come up. And if you are a guest and you, or if, rather, if you listen to the show and would like to be a guest, you think you have something interesting to say, contact me, uh, Frankie at redcowentertainment.com. I'd love to have you on. Uh, so of course, uh, uh, this all has culminated into me writing a book, which you've probably heard about on either little spots that I've done uh, on the network or on the Facebook page or whatever. Um, More Weight, The Making of Having Fun Up There and Other Filmmaking Tales is the book. Uh, It is available in print, it is available electronically, and it is available as an audiobook. Um, I've learned a lot about self-publishing through this whole thing. I've never kind of done anything like this before. And I've actually like surprised up a lot of people are like, that's possible. You can like print really professional looking books on your own or make your own audiobook, and you can sell them all through Amazon and all this stuff. Yeah, man, it's totally possible. It's pretty easy. And I'd love to go through kind of like a tutorial, like a play by play on a different episode. But for this episode, what we're going to do is, after I'm done blabbing at you is I'm going to, uh, uh, I guess I'll let you listen to two chapters from the audiobook. I think that's for for those of you who have been cool enough to listen to this uh to this podcast long enough. I think that's a really healthy sample of the book. And then if you want to read the rest or you want to listen to the rest, you got to buy it. First taste is free. It's like a you know, I'm a, I'm basically a crank dealer here. Um or a frank dealer if you will. So uh but yeah, man, the 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 as far as the book goes, um I used lulu.com, which is a self-publishing service that was actually really great. You just kind of give them a PDF and you make sure to, you know, they have a lot of really nice uh, formatting guidelines uh, that Emily and I had to obey uh, to make sure that it prints properly. And it takes a little, there was a bit of trial and error of like printing one version, receiving it in the mail, being like, fuck, this one page is off by, you know, a little bit and then having to reprint it. But uh, fortunately, I mean, getting, getting books made up, especially paperback books made up was pretty inexpensive. It was like $7 for just to manufacture, you know, a 300 page paperback. Um, what hit me though was, cause we wanted to do like, um, there's really nice photos throughout the book, uh, taken by Bonica, uh, who did our, our set production stills on uh, having fun up there. We wanted to be able to print those in color. We thought they'd be really nice. And she, she formatted them for color and everything. Turns out that if you do a full color print on a hardcover with a dust jacket, it is like 50 bucks to print that. Um, so it, that, that is available for sale, the hardcover. Um, but it's expensive. You have, you'd have to like me an awful lot. Uh, but for the paperback, it's like 15 bucks. It's, it's to cover the cost of manufacturing and then let me wet, wet my beak a little bit. Um, but that's black and white. So you can you can get the book through. If you go to Amazon.com, you search for Frankie Frain, you're going to see the audiobook available on Audible.com, and you're going to see the paperback black and white on Amazon. Um, Amazon's a little more expensive. But if you go over to Lulu.com slash Frankie Frain, uh, you're going to see the hardcover and the paperback and the PDF. The PDF is like two bucks. So if you just want to read this thing for like two bucks, you totally can. Uh, uh, Audible... You know, uh, putting an audiobook up on audible.com, I was surprised by, I didn't get to set the price on that. They just, uh, set it for me automatically. And it was like, like $17 or something like that, which I don't know how they arrived at that. Um, but that's how much it is to listen to me blab for six and a half hours and read my own book aloud. So we'll see how many people bite at that. Um, and let me tell you something, uh, recording an audiobook. Not fun, man. Sitting here in a hot room, 
uh, with with a, a just a microphone and trying to read my own words and becoming critical of my own words and uh, flubbing and rereading. Oh my god, I I thought I would be like a pretty decent public reader or you know a loud reader, but damn, was that hard. And then you know it requires a lot of editing. So it, I swear it took like I probably took three weeks to to write the whole book. I didn't expect it to go that fast, but it all just kind of came out of me. It was really the editing of the thing that took a long time. But recording the audiobook and preparing it, that took way longer. And then, of course, we once I went through all the trouble of editing it, I also went in and uh, and and took the time to kind of, uh, you know, anytime Jeff Torelli or Kyle Gage or John Hunt have an aside, I, I was able to actually get them to record that. So you actually hear them read their own pieces. And um, and I was able to kind of color some of the audiobook with music. Like if we're talking about Johnny Northrup's music, you get to hear some of that. So the audiobook, we really, I, I, I put in a lot of effort to make that a nice presentation. And uh, if you're like me and there's just no damn time to sit down and read a book, um, but you do have to sit on trains or buses or, or have commutes in the morning or go to the gym, uh, listen to the audiobook. It might be the way to go. So uh, uh, with all that said, um, I'm going to let you listen to uh, chapter two of the book, which is, uh, our, the kind of the making of sexually Frank. It was originally a blog, um, which kind of inspired the whole book. It was something I wrote, I wrote for sexually Frank and people kind of liked it and said, I wish you'd kept going and, and like went into the actual details of the production and then post-production and everything else. It was really just the pre-production. Um, so I kind of, we, we kind of gussied that up and made that the second chapter of the book. And then we go into having fun up there right after that. So I'm, uh, I'm going to let you listen to chapter two and then it's going to go right into chapter three, which details, um, kind of how Jeff and I met in a screenwriting course and, um, and how I discovered the short, the short script for that and, and how that all evolved. Uh, hopefully that you'll find that kind of interesting. Um, and in other news, just to some quick housekeeping, um, if you haven't heard by now, having fun up there is an official selection of the Austin film festival, which is really exciting. Um, I've never played at a festival that's that big from what I understand. It's like, you know, attended by 4,000 people. We're totally going to go really excited about that. And, uh, yeah, who knows, man, this movie just keeps, uh, it it keeps getting a little bit more momentum each time. If, if it dies at Austin, I mean, that'd be totally cool. But for a minute there, we thought that we thought Buffalo and Seattle with empty theaters was going to be the end of, uh, of this little film. But turns out that it's a little film that could, maybe. So here we go. Chapter two, and then going right into chapter three. Thank you for listening to Discount Film School for, I guess, what's been like two years now. It's been totally fun to record these. I love them. Uh, keep listening to them so that I'm inspired to keep making them. Thanks so much. Happy 50th. More Weight, the making of Having Fun Up There and Other Filmmaking Tales by Frankie Frayne. Chapter two, Why Sexually Frank Exists. I like what I like. Sexually Frank is the first time I've had something to say in a film, and the movie was never supposed to exist. On July 21st, 2007, I screened Abo the Hugh Monkey to a crowd of several hundred locals and personal supporters. The laughs were sparse, but the love was there. It's a warm and fuzzy feeling screening your work to a supportive crowd. This was my second time. After the credits rolled, punctuated by the infamous Abo rap, He's a human of the genus I jumped up on stage, thanked the fuck out of everyone, and answered some questions. A few kind folks wanted to know what my next career move was, which I was happy to say I had all figured out. Making two no-budget indie features was a crucial learning experience. The small, trauma-based success I experienced with I Need to Lose 10 Pounds was more than we ever expected. But I was 21, and the backyard bullshit was over. It's time to get all rich and famous and shit. Yeah, I'm, I'm not making another feature after this, I proclaimed biblically, donning a white Abo t-shirt, black blazer, and jeans that extended below my sneakers, and some product in my hair that my gay friends insisted on. I'm going to LA, and I'm just going to focus on writing screenplays. In film school, they don't expect your thesis film to hit big or find commercial success. They expect you to produce a calling card. Something you can shop to studios or investors that says, See, I can make a movie without money, so let me make a film with money and I'll blow your balls off. 10 Pounds would act as my cute first-time acquisition success, despite the film never actually being released. See Chapter 16. And Abo would be my calling card. I was entering my last semester at Emerson College, and I had enrolled in the Los Angeles internship program. The plan was to intern at a high-profile studio, get hired by said studio, and move permanently to L.A., shopping my talents with Abo in one arm and screenplays in another. Solid plan. 
But there was one ugly, farting, screaming elephant in the room. I had been dating Nina Shalesky since I was 14. Along with John Hun, Aaron St. Lauren, and Jake and Keith Sadik, she was intertwined with my filmmaking life. She was the Chewy to my Han, growling awkwardly when I got lost in the snows of Hoth. She was the person I shamelessly rambled to, night after night, about how I could never have a 9-to-5 job. She was the hand I squeezed through our film screenings. She cried when our main actor quit halfway through shooting I Need to Lose 10 Pounds. She sent edible arrangements to every location that allowed us to shoot Abo the Hue Monkey. She dug through her father's cluttered basement for every prop we've ever used. She wept over pancakes with Keith Sadik the morning I left for college. And when even my closest friends thought this whole film thing was obnoxious and self-serving, and let's face it, they were right, she never did. She was actually entertaining the idea of moving to L.A. with me, but in the meanwhile, the four-month semester away from one another was going to be tough. We hung out in my childhood bedroom and watched movies the night before I left. I was waiting for a long, heart-wrenching goodbye moment, but Nina put on her grown-up face, told me it was going to be quick, and ordered me to go be amazing. We'll see how well that turned out. I watched her walk all the way to her beat-up Corolla, and I waited as it coughed to life. And then it drove the fuck away. Because, you know, I needed to go be rich and famous and shit. She left me an envelope with $300. I bought a GPS with that. Three years prior, I had left her to go to college, and now was the second time that I had to say goodbye to this incredible person. It would be the last. LA is basically an eight-lane highway of fast food and palm trees. It's good for two things eating like shit, and catching great movie screenings. I did both, and a lot. I interned at the 20th Century Fox Television casting office during the writer's strike in 2007, where I met Kelsey Grammer, Fred Willard, Patricia Heaton, Michael Rapoport, and more. My job was to run errands and screen unsolicited acting reels, and let the assistants to the heads of casting know if anyone seemed interesting, and I alerted them to too many prospects and gained a reputation for not being selective. Due to the strike, they asked me to come up with reality show ideas, and I thought it would be lovely to see a competition for who can gain the most weight, the biggest winner, if you will. I also wrote a treatment for Stink Pot, a competition in which contestants try to smell their worst and still operate in society. When they get kicked off the show, they're pushed into a giant washing machine. I don't think anyone even read the treatment, because surely they would have picked up the show. One of the perks of being an Emerson student is you're supposed to be connected into some sort of hive called the Emerson Mafia, meaning current students and alumni are supposed to connect one another in the industry, like a huge self-important human centipede. And it's not all bullshit. Emersonians do perpetuate a system of aid, and on one such occasion, a graduate I knew invited me to a cookout. Thinking this meant free meat, cheese, and bread, I drove my chubby ass right over there. Sure, burgers were available, but priority was placed on talking shop. His living conditions were very college. I was never quite suited for dorm living. I never drank, smoked, or puked during college, so the reek of a dorm room was something I wanted to leave behind. And yet my fellow Emerson mobsters were living like frat boys. Why? Because none of them had adult jobs. Mom and dad were still floating cash. Then my former classmate got down and dirty. In college, he aspired to be a writer and comedian, but unfortunately, he was born a douchebag and was unfunny. Accepting this, he moved to LA and decided to become an agent wrapping both arms around his douchiness and hugging it out. He started talking to me about YouTube videos and how we should make 20-second hilarious videos and just collect hits like fucking Pokemon. I kept stuffing my face through the misery of listening to this. Don't get me wrong, I got a few YouTube hits one time with a George Lucas parody, and I ride that shit like a pony to this day. But it was through this experience of him talking about fame for fame's sake that made me realize something very important. I'm an artist. Yeah, me. The guy who made I Need to Lose 10 Pounds and Abo the fucking Hue Monkey. Feel how you will about those films. Each was an insanely emotional, long, drawn-out labor of love. The youthful adrenaline that powered those films came from the DIY filmmakers. Robert Rodriguez, Peter Jackson, Kevin Smith, Lloyd Kaufman. Guys who didn't ask for permission to make films. They went dumpster diving and scrapped together their art. All that team fascination with trauma films and DVD special features and film research was about mustering the confidence to ask, why can't I do this? It wasn't to get hits. It wasn't to make calling cards. It wasn't to meet Patricia fucking Heaton. It was to be an artist. See if I could do it. Maybe even express something unique. And yet, as I reached for what had to have been my sixth burger, my former classmate dribbled on about getting sponsors for some website we were going to make. And I realized why I was in this toilet bowl of a city. I was asking permission to make films. I was asking permission to do something I already do. But this time without the people who love me enough to make it possible. 
Instead, I was trying to sell a script, get an agent, make contacts, get some hits, or make a film with a real budget. To find validation, to transcend my status as an aspirer. Nonsense. On the East Coast, I made what I wanted, with who I wanted, how I wanted, and both films were seen by thousands. I even had a small handful of aspiring high school students and would-be artists who reached out to me to say that £10 and ABO aspired them to try this film thing out themselves. That was validation. Not whatever this comedian-turned-agent was selling me. As the months ticked on, I would run into this type over and over and over. Former classmates who I once knew as artists had production assistant jobs, which would run out month to month. The exhaustion of job chasing killed their creativity. Some left LA. Some stayed out of ambivalence. I excused myself from that enthralling conversation and stepped outside of the apartment complex. I dialed Nina. I told her that when I come home, I'm staying home. She wanted me to think about it. I told her I had. I had said something earlier that year on a stage or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm not making another feature after this. I'm going to L.A. and I'm just going to focus on writing screenplays. Nina and I thought we were done talking and hung up. I tried to return to the party, but couldn't. The comedian agent was pitching someone else. I called her back. Yeah? So what do you think? Should we make another one? She laughed. Yeah, I'd love to. If I could have gone home that day, I would have. But I had an internship to finish. So I made the best of it, stayed away from douchey cookouts, and acted in a cool horror film. I played a character in Psycho Sleepover named Ugly Jen, which will forever prevail as a document of my very fattest weight. One drab, strikey day at Fox Casting. Work was slow. Everyone had their photocopies and coffee, so my work was done. I was instant messaging throughout the day and found myself in a long conversation with John Hunt. John had enabled me to make films when I was 14. Our friendship was predicated on our artistic endeavors, and we had been through a lot together. He taught me how to drive, how to use a camera. He set up my first editing machine, and we were friends when his mom died. There was a bond there. John had struggled with obesity all of his life, and throughout his 20s, he found himself at a dangerous weight. He also struggled with depression, and it was difficult to urge him to do something about his health, which was only going to become a more serious issue. I told him I was coming back, which he seemed happy about, and that I wanted to make another movie, of which he was supportive. He was a little down, because he hadn't participated on ABO like he would have wanted to. He felt a little left out of that production. But the reality was, we shot in the city, which required a lot of walking. And at nearly 500 pounds, that just wasn't plausible for John. I began to thank him, in ways I should have long, long before that I am conversation. I thanked him for everything he had meant to me, every bit of kindness and charity he had shown me, and I told him how important he was in my life. And I told him to lose weight. I told him to do whatever it takes, get your stomach stapled, go on an all-liquid diet, do whatever the fuck you have to do, but do it and do it before you're 30. He thanked me for the concern and gave me the usual John business. It's not something I feel I need to do or will do, but thank you. Polite shrugging off. John was the best at it. Whatever. I tried. I spent my free time in L.A. with a good friend, Kurt Krober, who pops up in all my films at some point or another, and our mutual friend, Dan Cohen. Since I'm not keen to meet new people, I would tag along with them and meet their friends, and their friends of friends, and their friends of friends of friends. Knowing that I would leave that city and never return, I felt invincible in my social interactions, and I decided to start experimenting. I would ask these strangers, who expected broad, casual conversations, the most graphic, attention-seeking sexual questions I could think up. Have you ever had balls in your mouth? How much money would it take for you to do, insert sex act here? What do you think is worse, rape or murder? Would you be offended if you found out someone secretly jacked off to your Facebook picture? The questions were purely academic. It tested boundaries, it challenged our presumptions of who someone else is, and it gave me a sense of how these people felt about themselves. I found sexual conversation, even in its most puerile form, to be an illuminating instrument in discovering these people. It made me laugh, it made my friends laugh, and it never ended in jail time. I got a kick out of it. And Dan got a kick out of it himself when he told me, drunkenly, you're so frank, Frank. You're all sexual and frank, and your name is Frank. And you know who you are? You're sexually frank. Frank. <laughs> Stumble. Crash. Meow. It was stupid. And pretty perfect. Whatever this odd, sexually discursive side of me was had become my new creative pastime. And it was so much more than shock as these gross-out conversations led to fascinating discussions of sexual identity and insecurity. One in particular captured my imagination. Kurt and Dan had made a video comedy sketch called VCR Sex, where a woman has a VCR as her vagina and the man has a VHS as his dick. They fuck, and Titanic plays on a nearby television. Every night in my dreams, 
The very attractive actress loved being part of something so twisted and funny until it ended up on porn websites. Suddenly, her tone turned sharp, and she insisted the video come off the internet immediately. Before, the audience was laughing, but now they were masturbating, and that made her feel dirty and slutty. But how, I wondered, does sexualizing the video change her original intent? I wanted to explore this and more in whatever the sexually frank movie might be. Eventually, after several flight delays and a small snowstorm, I arrived in Providence, Rhode Island. Nina was bundled up in a big pink coat and did an amazing job of pretending I didn't put on weight. She even fucked me when we got home, really selling the idea. Not to ruin the ending, but a year later, we got married on a Monday night by a justice of the peace. Our immediate family insisted on attending, which increased the price of the wedding to $150. We had no vows. Nina swiped some rings from her jewelry collection for the ring ceremony. Soon after returning to Boston, I needed a job, but I had a plan. I used to work as a student in Emerson's IT department. If I could get hired full-time, I could take advantage of their free tuition benefit and get a Master's of Fine Arts, which would enable me to teach. Solid plan. Three days after I landed, I took a bus up to Boston and waded through Chinatown to get to Emerson. The smell of chicken carcass, pissy snow, and throat-burning cold air made me feel amazing, and more than that, creative. Home sweet home. IT gave me a temp job. I lucked my way into a full-time gig in their lab operations department several months later. I began to lose some serious weight. Nina and I lived for free at her dad's. The MFA program was still a year away from opening in Emerson, so I got comfy with my new income and the 9-to-5 life. I was happy, but I wasn't creating anything. And soon after I got home, I grabbed dinner with John, who seemed to have lost a little bit of weight. He took dinner very seriously, telling me he was down to 1,200 calories a day. I kept quiet. John, Nina, and I became closer, if that was possible, meeting once a week to talk about our weight loss goals. John was infused with an energy I had never seen in him. Suddenly, the guy I always had to kick in the ass to do anything was kicking me in the ass weekly. When are you going to write that sexually frank? You should just write. Just write it. Just shut up and write it. I'll pay for it. Just write it. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah, I don't have any ideas. Grumble, grumble. Yeah, maybe. Not to ruin the ending or anything, but John lost over 250 pounds through diet and exercise alone. When he was ready, he also came out of the closet. He was 29. A great deal of my newfound sexual openness was born out of my friendship with Aaron St. Laurent. Aaron is a wiry, endlessly energetic, hilarious fuck. He came out of the closet shortly after our high school graduation, which was probably wise. We're from southeastern Massachusetts, the region that invented the phrase queer. Throughout middle school and high school, we were in a social circle that was oddly asexual, dodging any and all discussion of sex. When Aaron came out, those sexual apprehensions had to go away, and he became shamelessly sexual and open, which liberated the rest of us. He let us in on every nook and cranny of gay life. While I had always been supportive of gay rights, having a gay and honest friend who could talk about coming out to his family and workplace brought me that much closer to the cause. Being fat, nerdy, atheist, whatever, I was able to relate, to some degree, with the process of coming out, and Aaron's story became important. When we would hang out, we would often be with Keith Sadik, perhaps my oldest friend, a guy I met on a swing set and never fell out of contact with. Rare stuff. Due to his own apprehensions, Keith was still a virgin in his early 20s, and we didn't make it easier by pressuring him to talk to girls, or to try a new look, or to gussy up his MySpace page. He hated it. We loved him, even if we were dicks. Not to ruin the ending or anything, but Keith would lose his virginity at the end of our shoot with no help from us. When you have friends as funny as Aaron, Keith, and Nina, you'd be an idiot not to pick their brains when writing a story. But it didn't take us long to realize the best stories were right in front of us. Keith's virginity. Aaron's atypical persona as a homosexual. My long-standing monogamy with Nina. VCR sex. An ensemble piece that paid tribute to these relationships, examined through the frame of sex, celebrating everything of which I had left L.A. to return. An unapologetic proclamation that I like what I like, and what the fuck is wrong with that? I started banging out a few pages here and there, pulling from real life, finding it surprisingly difficult to be that open about my life in a film. It wasn't strictly autobiographical, but a multitude of characters and story elements were lifted directly from reality. I was going to have to bear all, down to the most embarrassing truths. Still, one key element was missing. Who the fuck was going to shoot this movie? I had clumsily shot 10 pounds when I was in high school, because who else was going to? But when I made Abo, Doug Bergdorf acted as the director of photography, and I knew I could never go back to manning the camera. I wasn't good at shooting, and having a cinematographer allowed me to focus on the film and not on individual shots. Additionally, I was going to be acting. 
Doug was the perfect DP. Not only was he insanely talented with a camera, but he was an independent filmmaker as well and knew how important time and budget were. This is rare with young DPs. Most are developing a reel without considering the film as a whole. In seeking the perfect shot, these DPs cost too much time to get more setups and the movie suffers. Doug worked quietly and effectively, and more importantly, we were great friends. The DP is the only other person, besides the director, who will be present for every take. You have to trust their judgment entirely, and you need to be in perfect sync. They're a key member of the family. So who would that be? Of my local friends, John was really the only one competent with AV equipment and not with cinematography. My Emerson friends were all in Los Angeles, Doug included. I worked in an IT office of computer nerds. If we needed to set up a storage cluster or a website, I had the resources, but I didn't know any camera folks. Several months into the job, my alcoholic bipolar cubemate was basically fired. I was anxious to fill the position with someone less unpredictable. I knew this one mild-mannered fellow named Dan Leach, who still had a year before graduating, but was approaching his L.A. semester. Until he heard there was an open position in IT. He decided to stay in Boston in pursuit of this position, and he was eventually hired. Meanwhile, this smart-ass Kurt Cobain-looking motherfucker named Kyle Gage was a work-study student, but was treated special by the administration. He liked it that way. He was developing Emerson's video hosting site, an academic version of YouTube. For whatever reason, the school thought it would be smart to have a student build a widely used academic tool with no plan to support it after he graduated. Soon, Emerson IT realized this and brought him on full-time. Both Dan and Kyle piled into my cube, where I discovered we had a common taste in awful 80s music and knew all the same Star Fox, Indiana Jones, and Spaceballs references. We shared an odd, media-saturated culture that made me feel like I knew them for years. Dan's roots were in film and video, and like me, he learned IT in service of media production. He was also an accomplished still photographer, and while he was a student, he bought this hot little still camera called the Canon 5D Mark II. I wasn't a still photographer, so I didn't give much of a fuck. Until he pointed out that it shot HD video. Then he showed me how shaky it was to operate because of its size, and how it didn't shoot at 24 frames per second. I went back to not giving a fuck. But I was taken by his interest in video production. And we already worked together every day and weren't getting tired of one another. I had seen some of his demo footage and it looked great. He came from a very studied background, so I was a little nervous that he wouldn't jive with our run-and-gun film methods. But the more I learned about him, the more perfect I knew he'd be, and I just had to ask him. I snuck it into conversation one day, almost asking like a joke. He said no, fairly outright, that he was more of an editor than a shooter. Damn, the search would have to continue. Meanwhile, this Kyle guy had to be on some sort of steroid because he had boundless energy. I could rarely keep up with how fast he moved, both on the job and in conversation, but it was admirable. He liked getting shit done while not taking it too seriously. But he wasn't a filmmaker. Not even close. Being a non-film student, Kyle had an outsider's perspective, and the ability to scoff at the self-important film douches of our school. He would have been the perfect DP for our production if he didn't have zero experience. Since I can't keep any thoughts to myself, I threw it out there one day, again as a joke, although this time it was totally a joke. Oh my god, really? Let's do it. Let's fucking do it. Yeah, it'd be fun. You could be the DP who has sex with all the ladies. Ooh, delicious. That was it, for at least a month or so. I didn't take my comments seriously, and I didn't take his reply seriously. But I didn't know something very important about Kyle. He regards playful suggestions as actual plans. As one of his final electives at Emerson, he took an experimental film class. Kyle informed the professor that he was shooting an MFA thesis in the upcoming year. Um, what? You? Yeah. Who's the director? Frankie Frayne? He's an idiot. You're not a DP. When Kyle relayed the exchange to me, I finally began to take the prospect seriously. Why not? He seemed to have an aptitude for just about everything, as well as a freakish amount of energy. And most of all, a desire to do something, anything, creative. Asking him to shoot was as anti-film student as I could possibly be. So I did it. Kyle started excitedly posting Facebook statuses like, Can't believe I'm gonna be a DP this summer, lol. He gave me in-depth script notes within a week. He would always give the film that level of energy. When Dan caught wind of this, he started dropping polite hints that he'd like to be involved. If you need another camera op or a gaffer or something, we could use my 5D. It was like he had no memory I had asked him in the first place. But suddenly the idea of two DPs, who I had business and personal relationships with, made a lot of sense. At best, we'd have two camera shoots, and where Kyle might lack, Dan could pick up. At worst, if one of them couldn't make a day, we'd do a one-camera shoot. 
Dan started building his personal arsenal, an all-purpose indie filmmaker camera kit, including a PVC pipe rig for that shaky 5D. Stupid thing still didn't shoot 24p. But then the 7D came out, and did shoot 24p, and digital SLRs became the toast of the town, a new camera standard for indie filmmakers. John Hunt bought one, as well as an intense collection of lav mics and a fancy pants four-channel recorder, the Ederall R44. Since his new weight loss, he was excited to have a more hands-on role for the film, and out of necessity and convenience, he became the sound guy. One day, Dan, bless his soul, fell asleep on the train. His 5D and lens kit were under his legs. When he woke up, they were gone. After a few tears and a whole lot of anxiety, insurance paid for a 7D and even more lenses. Now we had two 7Ds, two DPs, a sound guy I knew for years, and Nina as the tried-and-true producer. Everything but a cast. One of my favorite, yet most dreaded duties as director. Sexually Frank has people talking. They don't skateboard, jump out of planes, take off their shirts, or shoot guns. They talk. Sometimes they get up, walk over to the bed, sit down, talk some more. Sometimes they walk to the car, go for a drive, talk some more. This is pretty common in indie film, but it's also why low-budget films have the finest in bad acting. The more a bad actor talks, the more you want to kill him or her. So this movie needed strong actors. More than that, it needed honest, believable actors. I don't cast SAG, Screen Actors Guild actors. Let's count the reasons why. They require payment unless you have them sign the student film SAG waiver. Even then, if the film makes money one day, yeah, yeah, I know, it won't. You owe the actor a percentage of the back end. Am I cheap? Maybe. But when no one else on the film gets paid, and one or two SAG actors do after the fact, it sucks. And it adds a needless legal complexity to distribution that I don't want to deal with. Union actors work by union rules. That means crew-provided lunches, stricter schedules, and bullshit I can't afford on my insane, passion-fueled, no-money, art-fag schedule. Committing to some unlikely back-end might be worth it to you if you find the perfect actor. But are SAG actors, who are willing to work for deferred student films, likely to be any good? If they're working for free-ish, they obviously need more real material. And if they need more real material, how did they get into SAG in the first place? They were either a featured extra in a union film, or they paid their way in, which is fairly common. Either way, how do either of those things distinguish them from the non-union actors? It doesn't necessarily make them better. Lots of non-union actors are awful. Some are competent or have an interesting look or energy. Some are awesome and just not union yet. And they could really, really use your film for their reel, so they can get representation or go union. This is a good incentive, and they'll work harder on the part and are more likely to be on time and to rehearse. So if you need good, non-union actors, and you don't want to pay a rep house like Boston Casting or Stage Source, you need two things. An online ad, I use anyfilm.com, and more importantly, time. I started casting a year out. After seeing a lot of crap, I was able to fill secondary roles with excellent non-union actors like Maya Murphy, Lou Fiocco, Rose Norris, and even 17-year-old Jackie Coffin. I was, of course, playing the title role of Frank, mind you, not because of my acting ability, but because, well, I'm Frankie. I think Frank should be easy enough for me to channel. What was left? Jess, who was based on Nina, Neil, who was based on Keith, and the characters based on Aaron and his boyfriend Mike. Hmm. I really wanted to nail the casting on Jess, the Nina-based character. I saw some decent actresses, but there was something dry and misunderstood in all of their performances, something that made me question the integrity and honesty of the writing. It was depressing. I felt doomed to make a disingenuous, ill-represented female figure. And it was so important, for my sake and Nina's sake, that I got this character right. So, if you've seen the billing on the poster or the back of the DVD, you know I eventually cast Nina. Which seems like a no-brainer now, right? Except, of all the films I've made, I had only cast her in a lead role once a short film I made for a college project. My classmates really dug into how bad the actress was. They didn't know she was my girlfriend. Additionally, Abo had a character named Willie, who was based on a real person. I was tempted to cast the real Willie as Willie, until the talented and trained Ben Fisher came along and stole the part. He became the most celebrated aspect of that film. The experience taught me to always go with a real actor instead of someone who just amuses me, even if that character is based on him or her. So Nina was out. Not an option. One night, while ranting about how wrong all these actresses were, I asked Nina, What's so fucking hard about this part? D do me a favor. Just read with me. Just read as Jess. We read the gym scene. She played the humor perfectly. It was honest, funny, slightly biting, and also affectionate. She was Nina. And Jess was Nina. 
Why the fuck didn't I just cast her? I let her know what I was thinking. She became embarrassed and nervous, but much to my surprise, she said she would really like to play this part. It was like spotting a unicorn. I slept on it, and several nights later, we did a very sloppy camera test with the two of us. John Hunt asked some online friends to critique it. I didn't know these people, and they didn't know me. Their only criticism was that she was underacting. Too real, they said. They did, however, buy our relationship. So in a display of absolute laziness, I said fuck it, and I cast her. We read the script over and over and over, rehearsing and trading ideas. There were a few tears and serious nerves, right up to the first day and throughout the entire shoot. And then there was Keith's character, who I didn't audition anyone for. Every time I was ready to post an ad, I stopped and asked myself, who the fuck can play Keith other than Keith? I mean, it's Keith. One look, one look from Keith, and you get the whole story. His default human characteristics were perfect, but more than that, Keith's a smart and funny guy, a, a bit of a natural performer. He'll deny it, but he knows where and how to punch lines to make them funny. The only trouble was, Neil has a bit of an emotional breakdown at the end of the film. Asking a non-actor to put their emotions on display like that, it's a lot to ask. But we, too, read it over many times, laughing hysterically as he discovered where I pulled some of the lines and situations, right from his life. If he was bad in the film, at least we were going to laugh the entire time. And then there were the characters of Matt and Dan, inspired by Aaron and Mike. No one can make me laugh harder than Aaron, but he's just not an emotional actor, and he could never commit to that kind of time. So I never entertained it. But I needed someone who could have a tender, private side, while dominating the Keith character and being just as much of a guy as anyone in the group. And I needed a more sensitive, but still dignified boyfriend. Again, I'm lazy. I like what I like, and coming off of Abo, I knew I liked Ben Fisher and John Ryan. John Ryan was in Boston for six more months, and then would be off to Los Angeles. I had already lost Ben to New York, but that was within a transportable distance. When scheduling, I realized I would only need John for two weekends, and Ben for one. John Ryan is heterosexual, but I didn't need someone to play gay, just someone who was layered. And he contained those dominant jokester characteristics. He was oddly perfect as an actor, Aaron. And Ben, who is gay, wasn't thrilled about playing another gay character because he didn't want to be stereotyped. But when he read the script, he understood that these weren't gay characters. They were characters who were also gay. John and Ben loved working with me on Abo, and to my delight, they said yes to the movie. The rest is in the video blogs, available on YouTube and on the DVD and Blu-ray. Kyle and Dan were a tremendous team, as Dan shot his first feature, and Kyle shot his first anything. Dan has since become a viable, well-known DP within the Emerson and Boston community, and Kyle has become my primary DP. John Hunt was almost always the first to arrive, with a big-ass sound recorder and vest full of lapel receivers draped around his neck. Just as active and hands-on as anyone, he attended nearly every shoot. To my surprise, the crew was genuinely disappointed to finish the film. I always expect my casts and crew to never want to work with me again. But instead of getting pissy about our lack of lunch breaks or the late hours, the guys embraced the do-what-it-takes, no-budget-no-bullshit film philosophy, making me feel a little less alone in this business we call show. Nina Shalesky and Keith Sadik, who never acted outside of elementary school plays, turned in the most honest, compelling, emotionally candid performances I could ever ask for. They, and the rest of the cast, effortlessly lifted the film out of the usual student film pitfalls. Kids, anyone can act. Fuck sag. My acting was serviceable. The critical notes I hear are always geared towards my character's story and his evolution. But your wife and the sad guy were great. However I failed as an actor, I grew as a director and editor tremendously in ways L.A. probably wouldn't have allowed me. I would be too busy chasing YouTube hits. We're all proud of that film. It's watchable. It's thought-provoking. It incites argument. The inexperienced DPs shot up beautifully, and they continue to improve with each new project. It's yet another indie film about 20-somethings talking about sex, but I'm often told there's nothing to compare it to. More than any of that, it's everything I left L.A. to do and to experience in an hour and a half. It's a crisp, dense snapshot of who I was at 24 years old. I can hand it to any stranger and say, hey, watch this, and when it's over, you'll know me. It's an examination of why this culture is so afraid of sex, and how it makes people treat one another. It's a loud, unapologetic thank you to my friends, a network that only expanded by making the film. And it's a love letter to my wife. Not to ruin the ending, but Sexually Frank is an obscene, coarse, honest group hug. Chapter 3. Before Having Fun Up There. Making Sexually Frank, Directing Vibes, and Meeting Jeff Torelli. 
This is shit that I did before I had any idea what I was doing. Making Sexually Frank was, and perhaps still is, the most rewarding artistic endeavor of my life. The pre-production was a little horrifying. I was working with first-time cinematographers, three of the five primary cast were non-actors, two of whom wanted nothing to do with the front of a camera, and the film had some controversial socio-political statements. But ultimately, with the exception of a few stuffy film professors, the film was well-received, beyond my expectations. For a movie with my name in the title, it was the most collaborative, relaxed, and exciting group effort I had been involved with to date. It was something of a renaissance for me, as I was working out why I make films and what the future of my non-Los Angeles-based film career was going to look like. Among the energetic and enthusiastic crew, a fun-as-hell-but-inexpensive-good-time, growing interest from the local film community to work with me, and ultimately a great film, I felt I had found a fulfilling creative life that I could sustain indefinitely. And with excited cast, crew, and volunteers, I started to hear a lot of, Hey, next time you make a movie, let me know. I'll do whatever to help. It seemed ridiculous to not continue producing content, and quickly. But I only have so many scripts in me, so I began to fantasize about expanding our Red Cow Entertainment film brand to more filmmakers. Have a script you want to direct, but you need camera, sound, and actors? Hey, we got those. I wanted to approve of the content before slapping my fat cow on it, but the concept was exhilarating. Enough Frankie Freen vanity projects already. Let's all just make a bunch of art, as much as we can fit into a reasonable lifetime. Rewind for a moment to the fall of 2009. I had enrolled in my first semester of Emerson College's MFA film program. I knew that I was three years off from presenting my MFA thesis project, but I knew that project was going to be sexually frank, and I had already written the script. I was a year away from shooting. It was going to be a trick to stretch the production out for three years. One of my first classes was a short screenplay class. By this point, I had taken three or four screenwriting courses in undergrad, so I wasn't into it. Most of the scripts in the class sucked but. Seriously, I would expect anyone who's ever had anything slightly interesting happen to them to write better scripts than these. Uninspired, boring dog shit, written by people spending exorbitant tuition in an effort to establish their careers as storytellers. Maybe their inexperience was the problem. Regardless, the melodramatic, dry dreck exercised my inner adolescence as I started to write obscene, absurdist comedies just to get a reaction. Made worse, the professor, who came highly recommended, preferred to pitch story changes to the students rather than help them write whatever they were trying to accomplish. Instead, he would tell you to rewrite your script with his ideas. I was working at the school full-time, so I wasn't paying tuition, and I felt invincible. I pitched a melodrama about a man with two penises. It was a hospital crime drama with obscene nonsense. As is often the case with me, maybe two people found it funny. The rest were confused or pissed. The professor tried to script doctor it as best as he could. Maybe he has a second penis, uh, surgically added, because he thinks that's what the woman of his, of his dreams has always wanted? Huh. Well, okay, I'll give that a stab. I went home and wrote a pretty funny short about a nerdy virgin at a sports bar who divulges to some meatheads that he's really into conjoined twins. They vow to get him laid, and they find a woman with a tiny and vile conjoined twin. He reveals at the end that he has two penises, and they go off into the night to fuck behind a Target dumpster. I submitted it knowing it was too out there for the milk toast, dry-crusted pulse of that classroom, but I didn't think it was going to cause any permanent damage. But the screenwriter professor emailed me and asked that I speak to him during his office hours. Y you can't read this in class. I'm going to give the class the option to read it and give you notes, but y you can't read this in class. Oh, so we have to write, like, PG-13 type stuff in this class only? You know, Jesse had a ton of fucks in his script. Yeah, but your script is problematic. Which part? It's sexist. To women. So there you go. In a script that should have been comically offensive to anyone breathing, it was decided that it slighted women specifically. I guess we need more advocates for conjoined twins, meatheads, and middle-aged virgins. My professor asked me to write a new script to be graded. Now I was low on time and needed to submit something I could stand behind. So I thought I had conceived the perfect crime. Submit the Neil storyline from Sexually Frank. It was easily the strongest, had a group of diverse characters, and a very definitive, if not tragic, story arc. Boom. Done. Now this dude wanted to talk to me after class. To be fair, as soon as he started talking, I realized how important the context of the other storylines were to Neil's character and experience. If you haven't seen the movie, Neil is a 24-year-old virgin who crushes on a co-worker. He ends up in an incidental date with her, gets a handjob, and is caught by her mother, who reveals that her daughter is 16. He's charged with being a sexual predator, and in the greater context of the film, we challenge some ideas about sex crimes and victimization. But by itself, it looks like we're saying, hey, how is he supposed to know? The problem, Frankie, is that it's basically an apology for sex predators everywhere. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. So now, between rebelling against the class and being lazy, I probably looked like a dangerous and freakish individual. I ended up writing some other benign crap and got through the remainder of the class. Jeff Torelli was in that class. He didn't write shit. He opted to write a longer form short, 30 to 40 pages, called You Guys Really Looked Like You Were Having Fun Up There, about an embittered and slightly aged musician who has a shitty food service job but doesn't do afford himself the time to pursue his music. It had an offbeat but cool ending where he turns away from starting a career as an investment planner to continue playing gigs. He chooses his currently crappy life. But there's no movie bullshit. He doesn't get signed by a record label or win a big music contest or some such contrivance. Unlike me, who was busy apologizing for sexual predators, Jeff was clearly working something out artistically. It was clear, from the writing alone, that Jeff was a musician. About eight years my elder, he had been faced with the art versus commerce question even more than I had, and was trying to express a fairly enlightened and complex statement about it. That script took delight in breaking a big screenwriting rule. Overly described action lines and settings in your screenplay are typically omitted unless the writer is also the director, as those things are for a director to interpret. Additionally, even good screenplays can be tiresome to read if they're bogged down with over-explanation. When lots of description is necessary, screenwriters tend to break the paragraph so that no action takes more than three lines. Jeff said, fuck that. The settings and world of his main character were described in wonderful, beautiful, often disgusting detail. Here's an example from the original short. Mark pays the doorman and crosses into a narrow room with a long bar. The clientele is a mix of towny drinkers and the people here to see the bands. The two groups don't interact. There are tables along the walls where people eat cheeseburgers and other bar foods. There is a room further down at the end of the bar. Instruments tune and drums crash. Mark goes to the bar and nods to the bartender. She's middle-aged with too much makeup. Her skin is like leather and there is a permanently unamused look on her face. She has large, leathery breasts that she displays in an ill-fitting, low-cut shirt. It's cramped with dirty black and white tiles on the walls, a low ceiling with exposed pipes and a worn wood floor. There's a small crowd that mills about. They drink and gossip. There's a small stage in the back of the room, six inches off the floor. Four men in their early 20s stand on the stage where they tune their instruments and adjust amps. The drummer sets up his kit. That's not even it for that scene. There are several more paragraphs like these. Our classmates and professor mustered few notes for Jeff beyond, cut down the descriptions, they're too long. I loved him. Here's why. It showed that he was highly observational, and knew how to articulate those observations into writing. In my book, that equals intelligent. It communicates that the details matter to the story. That authenticity of the world is key in the audience believing his arc. It was visceral. I was there, in the story, with the character. And aside from Jeff Torelli... I write scripts in an amazingly obnoxious fashion on my own. Nine times out of ten, I give people something I've written, and they think I'm a pompous jackass who wants to dictate an entire movie from the screenplay. I understand that sort of overly wordy bullshit I do in terms of description is not correct for any kind of professional. Thank God I am not a professional, though. The descriptions get me in the correct frame of mind. I'm envisioning the scene as I write it. Details matter, and while on the set of a movie with a bigger budget, these details are often left up to an art director, who then gets some okays from the director, if he, she is the type who likes that kind of minutia. For me, I'm just trying to get into the mood. I told Frankie over and over again that the descriptions weren't meant to dictate how he set up shots or even what he put in them. They're more about getting a feeling across to better facilitate writer and director getting on the same page, since we are going to work so closely together on this. Also, I originally wrote this short because every time I saw the street-level rock musician in films or on TV, I sort of cringed. Little details always bothered me. The punk bands playing out of inappropriate gear, the focus on fashion and beauty, the complete absence of what it's actually like to not be able to pay the bills or come in late for a shitty work shift and to have grueling, unproductive rehearsals. These were the kinds of things I wanted to write since I didn't see them much. My script is going to be filled with the little details I thought would make it more authentic to the world I was coming from. I was afforded this luxury because Frankie got what I was trying to do and didn't assume I was just trying to take over the visuals. Mostly, though, if you write like I do, people will think you're an asshole. And then I found out a number of the locations took place in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I grew up in the next town over from New Bedford. It's a complicated little city slash town. New Bedford was, at one time, the whaling capital of the world, responsible for an influx of, mostly Portuguese, fishermen to leave its ports, kill as many whales as they could across three- to five-year outings, and return with burnable blubber and hopefully some edible meats. This book called Moby Dick took place out of New Bedford. 
There's a district with a whaling museum and nicely kept streets and awesome historical buildings. Off and on, there has even been a good deal of art, like music bars, precisely as Jeff described, cool hometown video stores, and vintage shops. But outside the historical district, New Bedford is a crime-ridden shitshow. Jeff went to UMass Dartmouth and lived in New Bedford for a short period. He described it to me as squalor. I left that class with the very fleeting sense that this music-as-art metaphor, New Bedford-based, passionately-described script, might be something I could direct. That was a new and weird notion for me. Later that year, I would have directed my third feature film, but because I wore so many hats on all my films, I never really thought of myself as a director. Specifically, I thought of myself more as a maker. I make movies. But what do I bring to them as the director? I didn't really consider that, but Jeff's script challenged me, and I started to consider it more carefully. I think Jeff just thought I was the apologist for sex predators. It wasn't until later that I found out Frankie was just trying to be an asshole with his first couple of scripts in the class. My honest initial feeling was that he was trying to be offensive, and I didn't know why. I guess I don't care. After seeing one too many Gigi Allen wannabes in the music scene, offensive for the sake of being offensive, I just sort of shrugged. I hadn't seen any of Frankie's movies yet, or had even talked to him at any great length. He struck me as a smart guy and absolutely different than a lot of other people, points in my book, but I had no idea if he was serious or not yet. Even if I was prepared to approach him about making that movie... And I wasn't. I still had to shoot Sexually Frank, and I was not convinced his script would be my next film. I doubted he would want to share a story as personal and personalized. I thought it would probably end up being his thesis or something. So across that next year or two, whenever I was asked if I would ever direct someone else's writing, I mentioned Jeff's script as an example of the kind of script I might direct. The following semester, still pre-Sexually Frank, I took an abysmal business of film class. I actually had a great time in the MFA program, and there were lots of positive aspects, so don't let these negative highlights color the program unfairly. The professor was entirely out of fucks to give. Order collapsed as she and the rest of the class barely attended. But in the first day or two, she gave us the lazy assignment of pitching a story idea to the class. I did sexually frank, and once again, the pitch made it seem far weirder than it really is. But I was comforted when another student, Ingrid, stood up and pitched a film called Vibes. She delivered the pitch the same way she speaks, with a sort of comic non-commitment. But what I heard in the pitch was a raunchy comedy about vibrators written by a woman and starring women. I thought it would be really badass of her to make that movie in the program, but she was new to narrative filmmaking, and the project would require some ambition. If nothing else, it took place in two porn shops, and one had to be massive, described in the script as the Walmart of sex stores. Much like Jeff's script, I filed this away as, wouldn't it be cool if we could help her get that movie made? I didn't really give it more thought than that. At some point during this time, I heard through the grapevine that Jeff's thesis was not going to be you guys, but rather a documentary about Lloyd Kaufman, president of Troma. Anyone who knows me knows that my film education was steeped in the Troma School of Filmmaking. This was now the third or fourth of several odd and significant coincidences that he and I shared. Jump forward to 2011. Sexually Frank is in the can, and I have a year of MFA left to complete. What the hell am I going to work on? I can't seriously just keep showing slightly adjusted cuts of the same movie, right? Eventually, I'll be exposed for the lazy hack I really am. Jeff was in my portfolio slash workshop class, where we were encouraged to bring in anything we were working on to share with the class. He was an engaged and interesting voice, and often group conversations would devolve into him and me talking to each other across the room about bullshit. Then he asked to see Sexually Frank, and I nervously sent him a link. These were his thoughts. I'm a total nerd like you. Just thought I'd start off with that line, because in a movie of things that I just really identified with, that one was my favorite. I've always loved in my life when the more normal and much more attractive people in the world have tried to identify with me for God knows what reason. It's always amazingly amusing when they try to pull the, I liked Evil Dead too, man. First of all, it looks great. It looks real, not like a student film. The shot that springs to mind is the one boyfriend I suck at names on the internet and the pan over to the other guy waiting in bed. The colors of the room, planned or not, work really well. It took me a while to get how these stories were going to tie together, but they eventually did, and it works. You do well playing yourself, and that's not a backhanded compliment. Some directors do it well, Woody Allen, and some suck amazing loads of goat dick doing it, Quentin Tarantino. The treatment of gay characters is pretty great, in my opinion. I just love that you give a character an entire scene before you out him, letting the audience think about their own stereotypes when it's revealed. I'm sure I'll have some actual criticism nitpicking as I process this, but I just wanted to say I finally got to watch this, and it was well worth the time. Good job, dude. Jeff. We talked about it in person a bit more, and reaffirmed that our tastes for naturalism, comedy, and character depictions were very similar. I appreciated that he picked up on things like not outing the character in the first scene. 
His sensibilities were encouraging, and I wasn't forgetting about that great script he wrote. Watching Sexually Frank was really where making having fun up there became a very serious consideration for me. As I said earlier, I didn't know if Frankie was serious or not. Was the double dick script merely the collegiate version of the kid on the playground who would eat paste so you would notice him? I had no idea until I saw Sexually Frank. I watched the whole thing on my laptop as I continued to nurse a couple of beers alone in my apartment one Saturday night and thought it smacked of sincerity. Not just the writing, but the acting and the directing. I'm talking about a film in which someone sticks their toe in another person's ass. Consequently, Frankie hates it, and rightfully so, when the film is reduced to that one scene, but I use it to make a point. There are silly things going on in this film. There are obscenities, there is simulated masturbation, there is, indeed, a by-the-letter-of-the-law sex offender who you're asked to sympathize with in that film. And it works. It all works for me, anyway. I walked away feeling good about a story that stresses the importance of friendship, the complexity of romance and domestic life, how important making art on any level can be to the artist, and the difficulty one can have when they don't share the same relationship philosophies with the rest of the world. And yes, a toe went to an ass. And by this time, I had established friends and acquaintances in the program, and I counted Ingrid among them, vibrator movie lady. I registered for yet another screenwriting class, and Ingrid was in this one. I wrote an intense drama about a pray the gay away conversion therapist. It was a short, but to produce it, I would have to focus a lot of resources on the look. It was an intensely visual story, which was new ground for me. And I was being encouraged by once professor and good friend slash cinematographer C.E. Courtney to do just that. So I focused on that movie, The Talking Cure, as my next film. After class, toward the end of the semester, Ingrid invited me and a few of the other students out for drinks, where I said these words to Ingrid. Maybe we can make that Vibes movie sometime. I actually forgot I even said it. But the following week, she met me for lunch to go over details. I told her that if we were going to do this, I wanted it to be written and directed by Ingrid. I wanted to play a producer's role, and as much as I wanted to act as a facilitator in bringing her human and equipment resources, as well as creative consultancy, in order to make the film a reality. I told her that Kyle Gage would shoot it, John Hunt would do sound, and I would cast a few of our standbys. I walked her through how to find additional casts and locations. When it came to legwork, she was awesome and dedicated, going to locations personally, collecting props, arranging auditions, etc. At this stage, I was really just a sounding board who repointed her when I thought she was moving in the wrong direction, but otherwise, hands off. Then day one of shooting began. It was a bar scene. Shoot have been easy, just a few gals sitting around a table doing some dialogue. We cast Kyle's brother as a sleazy guy who comes over and hassles them. Working with a familiar face made Kyle and me a little more comfortable, and we had the entire space to ourselves. When I got to the location, I saw Ingrid in working clothes, with a tight braid, working quietly with a friend to set up lights and props. What she wasn't doing was keeping the actors laughing, talking, running lines, and directing the crew to be where they needed to be. She could have easily been mistaken for just a quiet crew member. For this reason, the energy was low. The funny scene we were about to shoot was not going to be helped by the stoic and quiet atmosphere in that bar. But I wasn't about to jump in. I didn't want to be accused of taking over, especially in the first moments. And I committed to playing a supervisory role, not an operational role. So Nina and I chilled in the corner, really just waiting to help in the event of a disaster. I identified the first disaster. How did I describe Ingrid's pitch in class? Comically noncommittal? Yeah, that's how she directed actors and the cinematographer. Kyle, by his very nature, is already a snarkass and on some sort of natural crack that causes large spikes and deep drops in energy, and when he smells that there isn't strong, loud, clear leadership, especially for a time-sensitive project, his brother only had a few hours to shoot, he goes full asshole. Sometimes this comes in the form of a biting or sarcastic remark right in front of everyone, or it comes in the form of making his own decisions, filling in the gaps of direction that are missing. We have a joke on set, is Kyle gonna have to blank? because he often thinks that he has to take control of a situation for it to be done proficiently, or at all. It's not as big of a problem when I'm directing, because I normally direct to his standards, and when he's a fuck, I try not to take it personally. Kyle and Ingrid working together, one-on-one, was missing that critical social conditioning. And aside from Kyle Gage. There's one thing 99.9% of people crave, besides sex. Someone else calling the shots. I can't stress enough how important this is for literally any creative endeavor involving more than just yourself. If you want to make a movie, start by learning either how to be in charge or make friends with someone who doesn't mind being in charge for you. I'm a person who is highly conscious of the who's in charge dynamic, and if there's ever a vacuum, I try to fill it myself or bitch about how the ship is going to run aground. 
by my nature, I'm unable to just let things lie. This is a trait myself, Frankie, and many other creative by definition people share. It's an inability to let things fail when they are worthy of success. It's not so much that I feel like I have to explicitly take control of something to make sure it's done well, as Frankie outlined, but rather that someone is paying attention to the details that I see and what's not working at the moment. It's true, I agitate over these things. I sweat certain details, and I grow restless at how poorly they are often executed in the real world. It's often a question of priorities. The only thing I can really do about it on set is to acknowledge that sometimes I'm a bit too much of a bitch about them. But then again, everyone on set is a bitch about something. Toward the end of the bar scene, I jumped in to start speaking to the cast and crew more loudly and more affirmatively to communicate deliberate group activity. I parroted what Ingrid wanted, but just more loudly, the way an assistant director might on any other set. The bar scene came out choppy and the comedy was stilted. We didn't reshoot it, and it's the worst scene in the film. We still had a full day ahead after the bar, and Nina opted to go home. She had enough, which was the first sign I was involved with vibes in a capacity I wasn't comfortable with. I don't like making movies without my wife. It doesn't feel like home, and movie making should feel like home. John, Kyle, and I had just shot Sexually Frank and were pretty simpatico. Our internal clocks were synced. We knew when things were taking too long, by our standards, when the scene wasn't working, and when it was. This was Ingrid's first narrative project, and she had a style altogether different. We wanted to be wrapped by 8pm, but too much leisurely pizza eating caused us to run into 10pm. We argued about how big a deal that really was. Is 10pm really all that different from 8pm? But ultimately, I can't fault someone for having a different pace than me. And aside from John Hunt. I can vividly recall this day of shooting. After having a lot of fun working on Sexually Frank, I was excited to be back in it. And I was also excited that Frankie was taking things in a new direction by enabling other people to make their films. I remember all the hustle and bustle in that dark basement bar as I tromped around on autopilot, taping mics to people and asking them to speak and then be quiet, and then sitting idle and waiting for the magic to start. I was very used to how Frankie ran a shoot, and I think that I was kind of expecting Ingrid to take this on too, plus or minus 15%. As we finally got going, however, we got off to a mushy, slow start, with an excessive focus on detail that barely showed up on screen. It was strange to me, seeing how things were plodding along and how much different the whole experience felt without a strong lead. Audio is simple enough that you don't need much direction usually, besides miking the right people and pressing record at the right time, but I could see Kyle and Frankie struggle with the way things were going. During Abo the Hue Monkey, I remember there was a running joke about Frankie's directing consisting of faster, slower, and no flubs this time. Even providing that level of clarity to the actors would have been a step up. I remember on that first day thinking that this will probably make Frankie not want to take on another project like this, and being disappointed because of that. Her inexperience, however, caused some time-wasting debate. My personal favorite was when we had a character entering a room at the beginning of a scene. The character is about to leave the house, we have her getting her pocketbook in the first room, and then entering the room of the scene. Kyle and I wanted the room from which she was entering to have the light off, to create some depth in the frame. Ingrid insisted that it didn't make sense that she would exit a dark room. Perhaps she can turn the light off on the way through? Perhaps it can be dimly lit? Kyle and I were frustrated as we debated this insignificant detail. That's what experience affords you. When shooting a film, the only thing that really matters is what shows up on screen. Anything outside that frame is incidental. The entire art form and business of filmmaking is predicated on that concept. Some shit matters and some shit doesn't. And it occurred to me that time and several other times across the weekends we shot, this was a dumb idea. Not because Ingrid was inexperienced or because we disagreed with her or because our visions were colliding, but because I sought to hand someone a template for the way Frankie makes movies. The way I make movies is natural to me, but watching someone else try to do things the Frankie way showed me how proprietary my process is. For example, I shoot to edit. It's one way we save so much money and time. I've spent many hours behind an editing bay and have become good at mentally editing while shooting. I ultimately edited Vibes, which I think helps, and, and realistically, it turned out to be a cute movie. I met some talented new actors, had a great time shooting in porn stores, and it screened shockingly well at the Cinekink Film Festival 13 and at an MFA colloquium. It was also Kyle's first outing as sole cinematographer, and personality collisions aside, he did a great job. Ingrid went on to make a Frankie-less short with similar comedy, and I hope that Vibes was an amazing hands-on learning opportunity. But I found myself personally unfulfilled by the experience, because I meant for it to be more giving than it turned out to be. It didn't sour me on collaborating more closely with other filmmakers, but it did sour me on producing. 
Vibes proved that in order to produce my films the way I needed them produced, I have to be the director and editor, at minimum. We would see if I needed to be the writer. Jeff's damn script still picked at my skull, but I had every intention of making the Prey the Gay Away short. I kept meaning to revisit the script and fix some of the ham-fisted and embarrassing drama from the first pass, but the motivation was missing. It was April 2012, and my class would graduate the following month. To be a good doobie, I started attending thesis defenses, and one was Jeff's. His thesis turned out not to be the Lloyd Kaufman documentary, but an experimental film-slash-parody of 1980s business training videos. We caught one another for a moment afterward, and I mentioned that he or we should make his script into a feature someday. This inspired an exchange of heavy, prompt, and verbose email exchanges that haven't stopped to this day. I was cautious, because this was shaping up like vibes. I make an offhanded comment, the person becomes excited, and then I'm committed to something I'm not 100% about. But a few emails and a dinner later, and I could see I wanted to make a movie with this dude. But I made myself clear about one thing. I have to be the director. Practically speaking, I can't make the movie if I don't direct. And that, that's really what I want to get out of this. I want to tell a story I didn't write. But this story about a musician is mine and, and lots of people's story. It's about all artists. I just don't know anything about music and I could never write it myself. I would write a movie about making movies if I wrote it myself. So I want to make your movie, which will be my movie. Cool. And aside from Jeff Torelli. And I meant it. I knew there was no way I was going to make this script. It was too much for me. I was already working on two movies, working full-time and going to school full-time. I also trusted Frankie. More importantly, I think anytime you're super close to the material, it pays to have someone else take a stab at it. Too many scripts that never get produced, in my opinion, are way too autobiographical. It's really hard to see the picture when you're in the frame, and details that seem important to you because you're basing them off of real life can mean absolutely nothing to a viewer and contribute fuck all to a narrative, which is what you're trying to write. Writing based more than a little bit on personal experiences are a very tricky minefield to navigate. I knew with someone whose basic abilities and brain I trusted, we could weed out all the things I may have been attached to, but weren't contributing to a universal story about art. There are too many directly personal scripts out there, if you ask me. I think your own experiences are a good place to start, but the moment you start treating it like an autobiography, the more likely you're going to end up with something that no one but you and the people you're writing about are going to care about. For most of us, our lives just aren't that damn interesting. But basing scenes on certain specific experiences will absolutely help you to get some of the details very right. Oh my god, what's gonna happen next? How am I gonna find out what happens next week in this audiobook? Oh, you gotta pay money to find out what happens next. You gotta go to Amazon.com and search for Frankie Frayne. Or you gotta go to Lulu.com slash Frankie Frayne. Or maybe just RedCowEntertainment.com slash store. The fact is, folks... This book is available in all mediums, formats, and on multiple websites. It's really easy to buy it, so just fucking buy it, please. Make my time worthwhile. Oh, you do that already. You listen to my podcast. You're very sweet. I love you all. Good night.